I remember when he came to Perth once, we went driving and I took him inland to the Nullarbor. Um, and of course, we chatted as we were driving. And I remember one occasion when I asked him a question and there was this silence. And I don't know how long it was, but you know, these things can seem interminable. And I thought, hmm, did he hear what I said? Has he forgotten? Is he ignoring me? But, you know, after what seemed like, you know, a lifetime, it was probably only a couple of minutes, he gave me the answer. Um, and, you know, uh, this was typical. David thought long and hard before he would reply. Um, and he wouldn't go, uh, or um, you know, the things that the rest of us do to, to tell the other person that there's something going on between the ears. David was just silent. But when he replied, out came this perfectly formed answer. You know, you'd ask him a question, and as Frank said, his answers were always, I mean, good philosophers like David hit the question. They don't bullshit around it. They answer the question. And out will come a perfect answer supported by, you know, three arguments, two possible rejections, three possible counter-replies, all beautifully presented. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the podcast pins and the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 87. And this episode is with Frank Jackson and Graham Priest, two philosophers who do not need introductions, even outside of the Robinson's podcast multiverse, where they already reside on their own episodes. But Frank is emeritus professor at the Australian National University, and Frank is best known for uh, the knowledge argument and the accompanying or its accompanying thought experiment about Mary in her white room. But he's also, I mean, published in all sorts of areas from the philosophy of mind to epistemology to metaphysics to the philosophy of language, all the big areas. And Graham is, Graham Priest is a distinguished professor in the philosophy department at the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, like Frank, he's also hugely influential and has done important work on a wide, wide range of topics. So he's probably best known for his work in para-consistent logic and dialetheism, but he's also done plenty in the philosophy of mathematics and Eastern philosophy and metaphysics. And like I already mentioned, Graham and Frank have both been on the show before. Uh, Frank was on episode 69, where we talked about conceptual analysis, uh, physicalism, and the aforementioned knowledge argument. And, of course, the Mary's Room Thought Experiment. Well, Graham's been on two episodes. He was on episode 38, where we talked all about the metaphysics of nothingness for about three hours, which is much ado about nothing. I couldn't help couldn't help saying that. And he also appeared with Joel David Hamkins on episode 60. And that one, that episode was, the first half was about the liar paradox. And then the second was all about logical and mathematical pluralism. And more particularly, the, or Joel's version of the set theoretic multiverse. And then Graham, who has his own and is working on a book on the topic. But this episode is all about David Lewis, who, if Frank and Graham don't need an introduction, then uh, David Lewis certainly doesn't either, but I'll, I'll give him one anyway. He's up there with 
Saul Kripke, Quine, Carnap, uh, Tarski, maybe a handful of other people who had huge outsized influences on 20th century and by extension, 21st century philosophy. And Frank and Graham were good friends with David for many years because he spent a lot of time with his wife in Australia, uh, where Frank and Graham both taught at the time. So they not only have plenty of anecdotes about David, because by all accounts, he was a pretty tremendous character, but we also get into a lot of his philosophy as well, ranging from the thesis of modal realism. So David, and it is so funny to refer to these people as uh, by, by their first names. Maybe I should be saying Professor Lewis, but I will continue with David. Uh, but he believed that possible worlds were real, uh, concrete objects, or at least I think he did. I never spoke to him, but everybody seems to be under the impression that he did. And we talk about Humean supervenience, uh, the philosophy of set theory, uh, vagueness, uh, mental content, uh, Mariology, all sorts of things. Then I should also mention that, well, you should, I, I, always, I always seem to be at this point mentioning an SEP article, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, because it is an absolutely terrific resource. And there's an article about David Lewis by Brian Weatherson that you should check out if you want to know. If you want a, a really broad understanding of David's work, because in this episode, we mainly go through, I think, some of the, the highlights. Then Frank and Graham have edited a volume called Lewisian Themes on the philosophy of David Lewis, and that came out in 2004. And I think with Oxford University Press or Clarendon Press, which might be a subsidiary of Oxford University Press, I'm not sure why we always mention the university press when talking about uh, academic books and articles, but we do, so there's that. And then the last thing I should mention in terms of uh, background or resources is Barry Lamb's Hi-Fi Nation podcast, which is now on season six, all about the future. It's a terrific show. Barry was on a, an earlier episode, I don't know, somewhere in the 30s. But he has a, I think it's a multi-part series. It might just be one episode, but I'm pretty sure it's many episodes on David Lewis. And I think the series is called The Man of Many Worlds. And I enjoyed that a great deal when I listened to it uh, last year. So I highly recommend checking that out. Now, without any further ado... Actually, there's a little bit of further ado. Uh, please leave comments, like, subscribe, all of those things. Um, and then also check out Robinson Eats on Twitch and YouTube, where I have my pint of ice cream and talk with whoever shows up. And then now, now without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Frank and Graham as much as I enjoyed having it with them. I think that this might have come up in 
my briefly at least in my conversations with both of you separately but this of course is the time to talk about it in a bit more de- bit more detail or depth and that's how you two knew David Lewis and maybe just a bit about who he was and what he meant to you because I know he was your friend he he was your friend he was your philosophical colleague I think at least in your case Frank he was something of like a philosophical idol well I think it's probably true that Frank knew him better than I did but um background okay so um, David was, of course, an American philosopher. He worked at Princeton for most of his life. Um, but for some reason, he loved Australian philosophy. And maybe I'll leave that bit for Frank to fill in, at least initially. Um, and David and his wife, Steffi, came to Australia um, every northern summer for 20-plus years. Um, and David was a terrific philosopher, of course. Um, but also, he... He not only enjoyed doing philosophy, he enjoyed doing philosophy with other people. So when he came to Australia, he would get around, he'd come to the annual conference, he'd go to departments, he'd give papers, uh, he'd talk to, he'd give a lot of his time to graduate students. He loved arguing about philosophy, not in a point-scoring way, but just for the joy of trying to get to the bottom of some philosophical issue. Um, so... Uh, over the summer visits, um, I think most Australian philosophers saw a lot of David um, at conferences and departmental visits. And um, uh, I was one of those philosophers. Uh, I enjoyed crossing swords with David. Um, you always learn whether, you know, you ended up agreeing with him or not. Um, but uh, it was always a pleasure to be with him. Uh, and one, one, one last thing for I had up to Frank, uh, he, he always travelled with Steffi, his wife, <clears throat> and David was in a way very sociable, but um, he, he, he really enjoyed talking about philosophy, but not so much other things. So he, he would always leave the socialisation to Steffi. Um, so when you were at dinner, it was always with David and Steffi, and Steffi was a very sociable person. Uh, and David was obviously enjoying the social conversation, but he was always happy to leave non-philosophical talk to, to Steffi. But once he started talking philosophy, then then the kind of the philosophical David kicked in, and we might talk more about what that was like in due course. Okay, over to you, Frank. Well, picking up on the last point, um... We occasionally had dinner parties, as you'd expect. And after one of these, Steffi took me aside and said, that was great fun. Thank you very much. But you should understand what David really enjoys is Mm -hmm. arguing. Uh, uh, And she partly meant philosophical argument, which Graham just been talking about. And, of course, that was one of the reasons he was such a wonderful visitor to the country, because he did so much interacting with Everybody, uh, you know, old people, young people, important people, famous people, not famous people. Um, as long as they were doing philosophy, that got a big tick. Oh, correction. As long as they were doing good philosophy. Um, sometimes he would glaze over slightly if people started saying r- really r- ridiculous things. <laughs> I don't mean by ridiculous things he didn't believe, because as Graham says, he was very hospitable to views which he didn't agree with. And it was 
more than more than prepared to interact, and that was a great great plus. Um, but to go back to what Steffi said, it was partly he loved to argue about philosophy, but also he loved arguing in general. So he would be quite keen to perhaps argue about certain issues of the day. Um, in fact, he wrote a, a very nice paper on nuclear deterrence. But it was the, the to and fro of ideas and argument, uh, which I think particularly animated him. Uh, on a more personal front, I first met him when he came to Monash as a visiting professorship. Uh, we had a sort of special arrangement to bring people in from outside Australia to spend some weeks giving lectures at Monash. So I'd never met him before, so I picked him up at the airport and so on. And he gave a terrific set of lectures. And they weren't just a terrific set of lectures. He also answered questions really well. And uh, I'm sure Graham will back me up on this. In Australia, you get lots of visitors. Uh, and by and large, you expect they're very good philosophers. That's, that's why I get, they get invited. Uh, the papers they give are usually pretty good, but they're not always <laughs> terrific. And they vary in how good they are in responding to objections and questions, both in the discussion period and afterwards in general chit-chat. Uh, David was right up the top in the list of people who were good at answering questions from the audience and good at interacting afterwards. And it comes for that, interacting right. beforehand about philosophy. And that was one of the reasons that um, he was such a wonderful visitor and such a wonderful person to yeah. um, interact with. But he, he had many um, unusual mannerisms, shall we say, and we might talk about some of those. But one of them was that he actually thought before he answered questions. Um, so you'd ask a question, and then there'd be this silence. And the silence could actually go on for a long time. I remember when he came to Perth once, we went driving, and I took him inland to the Nullarbor. Um, and, of course, we chatted as we were driving. And I remember one occasion when I asked him a question, and there was this silence. And I don't know how long it was, but, you know, these things can seem interminable. And I thought, hmm. Did he hear what I said? Has he forgotten? Is he ignoring me? But, you know, after what seemed like, you know, a lifetime, it was probably only a couple of minutes, he gave him the answer. Um, and, you know, uh, this was typical. David thought wrong and hard before he would reply. Um, and he wouldn't go, uh, or um, you know, the things that the rest of us do to, to tell the other person that there's something going on between the ears. David was just silent. But when he replied, out came this perfectly formed answer. You know, you'd ask him a question, and as Frank said, his answers were always, I mean, good philosophers like David hit the question. They don't bullshit around it. They answer the question. And out will come a perfect answer supported by, you know, three arguments, two possible objections, three possible counter-replies, all beautifully presented. I mean... Of course, David was really always very clear, very organized, very structured, and, and very cogent as well. So this was one of his kind of um, personal mannerisms, shall we say. You're just following up on that. What Graham says is absolutely right. Sometimes it 
Well, sometimes I picked him up at the airport or somewhere or drove him from one place to another for a seminar. And exactly what Graham has described happened. But on the odd occasion, something else happened. He would give the answer and then he'd say, I've been thinking about this. And then what would follow would be a whole paper. (laughs) And a, a couple of years later, you'd see this paper in a leading journal. Now, it wouldn't be exactly as you'd heard it, but it was quite uncanny. Um, it wasn't just, as Graham said, he had organised replies to individual questions. He had whole ways of thinking about a topic. And if you were lucky enough to be, as Graham says, in a car, or in one case, um, sitting at our dinner table, you'd get the whole paper. Indeed, just to follow up on this, as you know, that no, I wrote a paper called Epiphenomenal Qualia many years ago, and David had a reply to it. So David read the paper, and he, I forget the exact details. I came back to our house for dinner, and I was cooking dinner. And David gave the whole of his ability reply to Epiphenomenal Qualia while I was struggling <laughs> with the pots and pans and setting the tail inside. <laughs> This all came out, this really very interesting response to the knowledge argument. Yeah. Uh, this, um, if I can just sort of pick up, um, is it okay if we play tag team memory memorabilia? Um, I mean, Frank's comment sort of illustrates something else about David. Some, some philosophers have big pictures, okay, and they are intent on sort of, you know, explaining their big pictures. Um, David did have a sort of big picture, but he was always fired off by other people's problems. So, you know, you'd, you'd, ex- you'd be talking about something. He'd go to a conference, hear a paper or whatever, and he'd get really interested in this. And then uh, he would engage with that problem and formulate an answer and a, a theory about it. And often, you know, this the, the little bits of problem and solution would get packed into a bigger picture in the end. But he was always first and foremost in, in he really loved engaging in philosophical problems and trying to figure out what the answers were. And um, uh, that, that was a, a very distinctive feature about David. Well, drawing together uh, a lot of what you've said, but maybe drawing most on what you both had to say about, David's penchant for argument. Graham, you said that he enjoyed arguing about philosophy, but not in a point scoring sort of way, but to get to the bottom of issues. And in the volume that you two edited uh, in 2004, I think David passed away in 2001. So your volume is Lewisian Themes, The Philosophy of David K. Lewis. But you two mentioned in the introduction that he treated objections to his work in print, at least, very differently from many other philosophers, and namely that he he took them seriously and would write copious sort of postscripts uh, defending his views, or uh, I don't know if you wrote that he would alter them to accommodate these objections. But do you see his attitude toward objections and argument as 
telling us something that more philosophers should be doing or doing differently? Do you want to go first? Well, the short answer is yes. I think Dave Graham's going to say the same. Um, just a bit of background. Of course, in the Australian context, David Armstrong was famous for responding to objections. So when David Armstrong wrote his big book on materialist theory of the mind, he roneoed off. This is before the days of, um, you know, modern technology. You had that, you know, thing you turn the thing around in the department office and it came out... Um, Robinson, you're too young to know about this, but it came out. <laughs> All right. It, you know, it came out. Uh, it was perfectly readable. Uh, and Armstrong would set this um, manuscript around and respond to objections. So that particular tradition of responding to objections was very much, uh, well, it was very Australian in a way. I mean, it's also true of Jack Smart. Jack Smart's famous paper on sensations and brain processes Remember, there's the bit where he says what he thinks, and there's the bit where he replies to all the objections. Um, and this is partly, I think, why David liked Australian philosophy so much. It was that to and fro obligation to re reply to objections. What was special about David Lewis, of course, was that he was extremely good at it. <laughs> I mean, Armstrong was pretty good at it, <laughs> and Jack was pretty good at it, but I think David Lewis was quite unusually mm -hmm. good. No, I, I agree with what Frank said. Um, let, let me kind of say a little bit more, but approach this sideways slightly. Um, David enjoyed arguing, okay? Um, and you might hear that exactly the wrong way because lots of people argue to win, point, win, a, win an argument, show how good they are, show they're better than the people they're arguing with. And this was not David at all. Um, David argued because he was really interested in solutions to problems. And um, he'd formulate theories and um, he'd defend them against objections. Sometimes he'd give them up. Uh, sometimes the people he was arguing with were persuaded by him. But what was centre to, let, let's call it a discussion rather than argument, was always the problem. And David was never interested in just winning points or showing he was smarter than you um, or anybody else. He just wanted to get to the bottom of philosophical issues. And um, I think I agree with Frank that this has always been um, a feature of Australian philosophy. Um, Australia, Australian conferences uh, are not well, I don't know quite how to put this, there are some countries which shall remain nameless where international conferences and so on are very much dominated by people who want to show how good they are. And Australia, to one, one of the things I love about Australian philosophy is that people who are into this, have this attitude, are very few and far between. So you can get discussions at conferences and papers, and everyone chips in. And as Frank said, they might be sort of heavies, they might be older established people, they might be grad students, they might be visitors who like it, doing philosophy. So they, they all put their heads together and try and sort out, you know, solutions to problems. And I do agree with, with Frank that uh, one of the reasons that David loved coming to Australia, which he did, was because this was the way that was philosophy was done. And um, he enjoyed just being in the thick of a, a philosophical debate, not to show how good he was or to point score or to come out on top, but just because 
he enjoyed the back and forth of philosophical Australian philosophical argument. Well, maybe this will take us a bit afield for a few minutes, but I think it's worth it because this is very interesting. But how then do you care? We So we know now what you think of uh, Australian philosophy or how it's done or some of its characteristics, but how does it compare to like American or Canadian or British uh, ways of doing analytic philosophy? Well, I think Graham should start on this because he has much more overseas experience than I do. Well, um, no doubt I'm going to say things which are going to get me into trouble, but that's never worried me in the past. Um, look, I, I think <laughs> you've got to understand something about Australian culture. And remember that I'm not Australian. I grew up in the UK. But um, Australia is a much more egalitarian country than either the UK or the US, um, both in social terms and in intellectual terms. So you might be a plumber, might live next door to a lawyer, and they'll both go down to the footy at the weekend and have a good time, have a beer, chat to each other. This kind of social mixing is not so much part of British or American culture, where there's a much more marked social divide. In Britain, it's to do with class. In the United States, it's to do with money. Okay? These things mean less in Australia than they do in the UK and the US. Um, and that egalitarian attitude carries over to the way that philosophy is done. Um, so the ethos of the AAP, which is the kind of Australian equivalent of the APA, uh, is very much people meeting on equal terms. And it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, a, a heavy like Frank or a, a young and raw graduate student. Um, the point is to sort of share philosophical ideas and get to the bottom of philosophical problems. Um, and uh, that's something that I, I love about Australian philosophy. And I don't find that attitude so much in the UK and the US, which is much more hierarchical. My, my problem is that I've got uh, quite extensive experience in both America and the United Kingdom, but it's fairly narrow experience. That I spent seven years at Princeton on a regular visiting appointment um, and I had a wonderful time. Uh, and the department was extremely welcoming and friendly. Um, but that's basically how I saw that Princeton group. And in fact, it was in some ways, just picking up on what Graham said, very Australian. Because of course, I was there, Michael Smith was there, Philip Pettit was there. And David there was, was there, of course. And, and David, well, when I was visiting, David had died, but earlier David was there. So, and of course, before that, there are many, uh, Al Hayek was a graduate student earlier and, and so on and so forth. So that's the basically perspective I have on the, the American philosophical scene. It's basically visits to Princeton with, with, and other places besides. Uh, I've only been to the odd APA conference and uh, maybe here I'm going to get into Graham trouble. Uh, I didn't find it terribly <laughs> hospitable, but it was partly just so enormous. Uh, it was you're a tiny cog in a huge number of parallel sessions and, and so on. As far as England's concerned, again, although I've spent 
periods of time in England, they've been in little particular areas. So St Andrews, which Graham knows well, it's a lovely welcoming environment. <laughs> and then there was a whole term in Oxford doing one particular set of things, which again was very welcome, and periods in Cambridge. And again, Cambridge is slightly Australian. Hugh Miller, of course, wasn't Australian, <laughs> but in some ways a certain connection in Hugh Miller and David Lewis. They're both very good overseas philosophers who had a great affection for Australian philosophy in one way or another. So that's why I'm, I'm, yet, I'm not as much used to you as Graham is, who has, of course, the advantage of having a long-term appointment in America and, of course, actually being born in the United Kingdom. So it gets a, gets a better perspective. Yeah, I'm not sure whether those are both advantages or disadvantages, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, just one last bigger picture question before we get into David's philosophy, though I guess those are all also big picture questions. But in Lewisian themes, I counted, uh, you mentioned 14 categories in which you thought he had a pretty significant impact on the philosophical literature, even though I'm sure there are probably more. But they were uh, possible worlds, counterpart theory, vagueness, knowledge, probability, essence, fiction, laws, conditionals, truth, materialism, and parenthesis, Australian version of Jack Smart and David Armstrong, uh, <laughs> who you already mentioned, Frank, when you were talking about his response to objections. But And then set theory, Mariology, and quantum mechanics. <laughs> and that that's a, a big list. And so David is well known as having been a programmatic philosopher in that everything he did was somehow subsumed under like one worldview. It was all connected. And like you've just, like you've, like you've said in the beginning of this conversation, he is a philosopher who really believed in the things that he argued. He was trying to solve the problems. This wasn't really a verbal exercise like it, like it is with some people. And is it possible to put, I mean, your finger on just what it is that linked these, at first glance, at least seemingly disparate topics in his mind? Well, how about I say something and see what Graham says. Um, as Graham correctly said earlier, David liked solving problems. And the overall view, typically but always, arose because when he offered solutions to individual problems, he could discern an underlying theme. And that was partly he had such a grasp of the thing as a whole. Um, I sometimes think about icebergs when I think about David. You know, an iceberg, there's a tip. There's all the stuff underneath. <laughs> um and often when you talk to Dave about one of his papers, you learned all the stuff that was underneath. So he saw a lot of how things linked together. So he became a sort of systematic philosopher with a sort of overall view because he saw what linked the solutions he offered to various problems. So that's how it came about. Um, on the topics you mentioned, this is not true of all of them, but for a lot of them, it's possible worlds link them. <laughs> So the treatment of 
subjunctive or counterfactuals, the treatment of content for belief and desire, the treatment of verisimilitude, uh, the treatment of fiction. What unifies them is seeing things in terms of possible worlds. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, let, let me sort of add something else to the picture. Uh, it, again, I'm going to come at this slightly sideways. Um, Trima Fasche, philosophy has a lot of different areas, and you might think they don't connect much. You know, logic, metaphysics, ethics, aesthetics, political philosophy, and people do those bits kind of largely independently of each other. But um, when you've been around for a long time, as both Frank and I have, um, you start to see that they all connect in ways which you wouldn't have necessarily have expected. Um, and you get to see some of these connections when you've been doing philosophy for a long time. Okay, so in some sense, philosophy becomes much more like a whole. Now, you can work in different areas and you can find a solution to this problem, a solution to that problem, and, you know, you can have a patchwork but um, if you're a good philosopher, I think that there comes a time when you start thinking about how they all fit together. And um, Wilfred Sellers said um, philosophy is about seeing how things in the most general sense fit together in the most general sense. And there's, there's, that's an insightful observation, I think. Now, David was far too good a philosopher to be content with you know, a solution to this and a solution to that, a solution to the other, which didn't fit together. Um, so he was interested in putting them together and he would work hard to put all the bits together. So he changed his mind sometimes when the bits did not fit together. So um, I think as we mentioned earlier, David did not start out with a big picture. He was driven by a problem and this problem and that problem. But he wanted to make sure that he fitted them all together. And over his life, um, which wasn't as long as one might have hoped, but over his life, which was still a considerable time, he did work to sort of work them into a coherent worldview, as it were. And I agree with Frank that um, possible worlds uh, were part of this worldview and a very central part. Let's move on then to the modal realism, because, I mean, you mentioned it, Frank, as the subject that in many ways ties together his thinking. But David's probably best remembered for his writings on possible worlds, particularly the thesis of modal realism. I mean, he thought that possible worlds really existed. And as I thought about how to broach this topic, uh, it occurred to me that I have no idea when people far first started thinking or writing about possible worlds. I think I first encountered them in Candide when Pangloss kept talking about the, what did he say? The best of all possible worlds, something like this. And while this might be rational reconstruction, if you never spoke with David about this in particular, but do you happen to know what considerations made them so initially appealing or promising to him for his philosophical purposes? Well, how about I start out and see what Graham says. Um, possible world to make modal logic easy. <laughs> it's 
So if we want to prove things in murder logic, translate them into possible worlds and life becomes easy. Um, possible worlds appear in probability theory. I mean, when you do probability theory, often they talk about distributions over event spaces. But the event spaces they're distributing probability over are just possible worlds. Um, when you read uh, philosophy of religion, you touched on this, people talk about it's just the best of all possible worlds and so on and so forth. So th these remarks are just reminding us that the possible world's way of thinking is ubiquitous. Um, and indeed, often people just say possible world's way of talking about truth conditions. So when you talk about the possible worlds at which the sentence snow is white is true, you're really talking about truth conditions. Or to say it in more ordinary English, you're talking about how things would have to be for the sentence snow is white to be true. There are many ways things might be, which are such that if they were the way things actually were, the sentence would be true. That gives you a set. That's a set of possible worlds. Now, I make these remarks to highlight the point that you can say all this without actually believing that there are any possible worlds other than the actual one. The actual one is the one that we three are parts of here and now. And if you're a four-dimensionalist like me, a block universe person like Jack Smart, or it's a huge, big four-dimensional structure, and we three are a tiny part of it. Or more precisely, uh, there are three temporal parts which are a tiny part of it, and later temporal parts are going to make some more remarks about David Lewis later on. <laughs> uh, but th 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 there aren't any other possible worlds in one sense. Uh, what was unusual about Lewis was that, of course, he went that extra step, which I think, and I'm going to look at Graham now, but I think in much company, I suspect in Graham's company, I, I can't believe that. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think there's a multitude of possible worlds. There's just the one, the one we're in. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about possible worlds. That's what happened in probability theory, for example. Uh, but you shouldn't take it um, ontologically seriously, so to speak. Yeah, um, I, I do believe uh, that some worlds are other than the actual, uh, though I don't subscribe to David's view. But let me um, sort of cycle back to, to your question, Robinson. Um, look, you do find discussion of worlds Possible worlds in Leibniz, of course, and Voltaire was satirizing those in like satirizing Leibniz in Candide, but they really don't get much traction until the 20th century. And the advent uh, is very obvious in the 20th century. So, um, 20th century modal logic was kicked off by C.I. Lewis uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century, but um, modal logic didn't have any semantics. And um, that fact, amongst others, allowed modal logic to get a very bad press in, with people like Quine and others. Um, what changed, and it has changed considerably, is the advent of modal semantics. So um, this was invented in the late 50s, 60s, and then there are several different players in this regard. But clearly the most important is Saul Kripke, um, who produced the most coherent and worked out theory of worlds, which provided a semantics for modal logic. And after that, uh, it kind of established their street creds. Um, so possible worlds, at least as 
technical devices come onto the scene in the 20th century then. Okay, but once you've got them as technical devices, you start to worry about what the hell they mean philosophically. And they might be just some calculating device, but um, it's very tempting when you've got philosophical semantics to read off the structure of reality from it. Um, and of course, Wittgenstein does exactly that in the Tractatus with um, the logic he was learning from, from Russell. So the Tractatus is just Principia Mathematica philosophically writ. And that's exactly what Saul uh, Kripke did. He took the possible world semantics and then he sort of read off a metaphysics of reality from them. And that reality had worlds. And actually, I asked Saul once whether that was what he was doing when he was writing Naming Necessity. And he said, yes. Um, once you've got a, a, a very clear, elegant framework, it's very easy to project this onto reality. And I'm not saying this is wrong. Um, it's often a very good thing to do in, uh, in logic. Okay. So uh, it was Saul who put possible worlds and their metaphysics on the table, I think. And this would have been, um, let me see, early 70s. Maybe necessity started to appear in the early 70s. Um, okay, so um, now let's talk about Lewis. Lewis is um, a student of Quine at Harvard. And he's actually very Quinean. Um, and he likes worlds. He thinks they have many applications, as we had shown how. Um, and... Uh, Quine thinks that if you need a bit of machinery to make sense of some bit of discourse, and particularly if you quantify over those things in your theory, then you have to be, uh, you have to invoke them in your, you have to take them to be part of your ontology, as it were. Uh, and David thought this possible words are so useful that he put them into his ontology um, for Quinean reasons. I mean, he did what Quine did for sets, for worlds. Okay. In that way, David was a Quinean. But he was a Quinean in another respect, too, because Quine thought that to quantify for something, you have to say it exists. So, next step, David said, okay, so possible world exists. Possible worlds exist. Um, and uh, he thought, well, the most sensible way of making the view coherent is to take worlds to be not some kind of abstract entities because, you know, the concrete world is no abstract entity. Nice and simple to say the other worlds are like that too. They're concrete, they have space and time, etc., etc. And so that's the theory of worlds that he developed. Um, so the genesis of his view was the technical work on semantics and modal logic, uh, the desire to read these in a metaphysical sense, and then the sort of Quinean themes which push him towards this view that is now called modal realism. Well, a lot of interesting things have come out of what the two of you just said. One, uh, Graham, I'm going to resist asking you what you mean when you say that there are more worlds than this one, unless uh, you think it's relevant and you'd like to answer that I didn't right say now. Quite that. I said some worlds are other than the actual. Notice that I did not say there is or there exists. Okay, so you meant that there are there aren't there are non-existent 
other worlds. Some worlds are non-existent objects. In fact, all worlds other than the actual are non-existent objects. Um, and that's a view that David had no sympathy with, and I'm sure that Frank doesn't have any sympathy with it either. Um, we can chat about it, but I think this would take us off the current one. Okay, sure, sure. And I was going to ask about the motivation for the modal realism, but I think that you just answered that largely, um, Graham. And it, it strikes me as somewhat similar almost to Quine's acceptance of mathematical objects exactly. that we, quanti we, yeah, we I, quantify I, over them. Exactly, that's right. I David was a very Quinean person. I mean, that's unsurprisingly, since he was a carpenter. I, I presume that Quine was his supervisor. I, I don't know. Do you know that, Frank? Uh, yes, I think Quine supervised his thesis at Harvard on right. convention. And I think Graham has put his finger on a very important point about Lewis, that he was Quinean. People often don't realise that. I mean, counterpart theory is a way of uh, being an essentialist without being an essentialist, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Remember, Quine was against essentialism. Counterpart theory was David's way of giving a nod to essentialism without actually being anti-Quinean. Well, I, what I wanted to ask, though, because I think that this is very worthwhile getting into, is how David responded or would have responded to criticisms of you mean the incredulous stare. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like i mean because people because obviously like you mentioned frank uh, many people can or people use possible worlds to great use to great effect without uh feeling ontologically uh committed to them yes yeah, so let me just highlight that a bit uh if you read decision theory uh, it's full of talk of possible worlds. Uh, read about the LA paradox. They're talking about people's reactions to possible situations. Now, as a matter of fact, sometimes the possible situations are actual. They actually generate them in a laboratory of some kind. Uh, but often they're not actual. And the opinions about these possible situations play a big role in driving all sorts of stuff about theory. Or take a simple example from day-to-day -day life. Um, I belong to the party which thinks America made a big mistake in invading Iraq. Now, why do I think that? Because I think that had America not invaded Iraq, things will be better than they now are. Uh, that's why I have this opinion, and I'm vaguely expecting that you two may have the same opinion. Mm. Now, that's not an opinion about words. <laughs> it's an opinion about a situation represented by words namely the situation I represent when I say, had America not invaded Iraq? You have an opinion about the situation, and that opinion is driving your opinion that America made a mistake in invading Iraq. So this is just a day-to-day -day example where you have to make sense of thinking about non-actual situations. Um, but having said all that, of course, unlike Lewis, I, I don't believe for a moment that there are actual possible words. And what David did in arguing for his uh, deviant view, that's a tendentious way of describing it, was, of course, classic Lewis. He said, OK, we need possible worlds. Maybe he used the very illustrations I just had. Let us consider all the possible theories you might have of these things. 
puts them all out and knocks everyone down except for the one he likes. So that was that was how he tackled the, the problem. Yeah. So, Robinson, your question was how did David respond to uh, his sceptics about his view? Uh, and it's pretty much as Frank just said. Um, so... Um, David always argued for his views uh, and his arguments, like all arguments, had premises and often these were Quine-type premises. But if um, he gave you a theory and you gave him objections, he would respond by replying to the objections. Maybe you'd agree with his replies, maybe you didn't. But his response was always to say, well, you've given me an argument against my view. Let me tell you why I don't think your argument works. And, um, you know, he made this sort of very memory-worthy phrase about the, the incredulous stare. Um, after he replied to the objections, uh, he would get the incredulous stare. I mean, it is an incredible theory, almost literally. Um, but as he said, uh, look, I've answered your objections. I don't know how to respond to an incredul incredulous stare, meaning, you know, um, uh, I've given you the only possible rational answer. If you don't believe it, well, you know, that's your problem. Graham, I, I have a question about how you would respond to David's modal realism. And my guess is that it it would stem just immediately from your not being a Quinean in that you wouldn't take quantification over the possible worlds as our being ontologically committed to them. But correct. then I would also wonder... Okay, that's correct. Correct. Uh, I also uh, wonder, uh, though, why you... Ob sorry, go on. Sorry, I also wonder why you objected to my... Uh, my paraphrasing or restructuring of your words to saying that there are worlds other than th there are other possible worlds because that shouldn't be ontologically committing for you to their existence. Okay. So um, you're quite right. I think Quine's argument that to quantify over something is to attribute existence to it is just a false view. And I think Quine's arguments for it and Russell's are shonky, okay? But, you know, we could spend the rest of the time talking about that. But that's at least where I'm coming from, okay? Um, so uh, the mere fact that you quantify with something doesn't determine whether it's um, it exists or not. And I have a very sort of hard-nosed Australian uh, view of reality. Reality is what you can bang your head against. Okay, I'm a, very much a realist in that sense. Um, and uh, abstract objects, other possible worlds, you can't bang your head against, at least in this world. Um, so they seem to me to be pretty good candidates for non-existent objects, which is what I take to be. Now, the other part of your question was why um, I balked at saying there is. Um, the verb... To be in English is a very complex thing. Um, I mean, the slogan to be is to be the value of a bound variable is just um, woefully too simplistic. But um, 
to keep it as simple as possible, um, in the way that it's usually used, I do not hear a distinction between there is and there exists. So some people who think that some things don't exist will be quite happy to say there are things that don't exist. Uh, that sums, that comes painfully close to saying there exist things that don't exist as far as I'm concerned. And for all my love of contradictions, that's not one by one. Um, so when I'm being careful about using a quantifier, which is not existentially loaded, I use some, which is after all, some is the particular quantifier. It's the dual of the universal quantifier, all. Um, so that's why I bought at the rephrasing. Okay. Okay. No, terrific. Thank you. Now, you both, I think, have mentioned Saul Kripke. I think one, a, another good way, because the using Quine as, I guess, not a foil in this case, but as a comparison was pretty enlightening. I'm wondering if using Saul as a foil will help shed light on how David used possible worlds before we get into some more of his particular uses. Like I have counterfactuals, mental co content, this sort of thing in mind. But how did his treatment of possible worlds differ from Kripke's? Okay. I uh, went first last time, Frank. Do you want to go? Um, I'm sure Graham has a better grasp of Kripke's views on possible worlds because he has the advantage of actually having spoken to him about it. Um, Kripke is one of my philosophical heroes, along with Lewis. I'm just going to wave to my wife. She's about mm -hmm. to go off somewhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they're, they're both, you know, heroes of mine philosophically. But there's a big difference between them. Uh, Lewis's writings are full of clarifications of exactly what he meant when he said this and that and what he'd say to this or that objection. So I feel I have an excellent grasp, or reasonably grasp anyway, uh, of what Lewis thought. Kripke wasn't really into that, so to speak. He wrote this incredibly important book, Naming Necessity, and other important stuff besides, but particularly Naming Necessity. Um, and, of course, he did respond to various comments people made about the book, but it wasn't in Lewis style, so you can't open up an article and read Saul Kripke's six replies to the questions people might have asked about this, that, and the next thing. So that's why I find myself limited in commenting exactly where Kripke would stay on this particular issue. That's partly why I think Graham has the advantage, because, of course, he was a colleague of, of Kripke's for, for some time. Yeah, look, I don't think that gives me enormous advantage, um, because you're, you're dead right, Frank, that Saul was very coy about this matter. Um, Saul's an, a very interesting thinker. Maybe we should do a discussion of Saul sometime. But um, Saul um, was very, very careful never to say anything that he thought might be wrong. And if you read Saul carefully, you will see that everything is very carefully qualified with, uh, this is only a sketch of a theory. Um, look at the footnotes where he 
sort of says, well, it's the, this is a, only an idea, it's more complicated than that. Um, so he was never blunt in the way that David was. And when it came to the states of worlds, uh, I don't know there's anywhere that I can remember where Saul lays out his account of what worlds are. He certainly did not agree with David's view. So um, to take one example of this, um, if you consider um, a world where the US did not invade Iraq, to pick up Frank's example, um, David said, well, you've got to consider a world where the U.S. didn't invade Iraq, but of course the U.S. only exists in this world, so you've really got to think of um, a U.S. counterpart as invading an Iraqi counterpart in this world. And then you get the, the, um, uh, that kind of story to be told. And, and Saul thought this was crazy. If you're talking about the U.S. invading Iraq, you're talking about the U.S., invading Iraq, okay? So you're not looking at some other possible world. You're kind of talking about a scenario that you um, posit by fiat, as it were. So he didn't like David's counterpart theory. Um, but uh, this is just an illustration of the fact that he sort of disagreed with the theory. I don't know that he ever really spelt out what he took these fiat these postulations by fiat to be. Um, if he had a view, um, and he, when he came to quantification, he was a Quinean as well. Um, I think he'd have had to think of them as come some kind of abstract object. Because you're quantifying over them, they therefore exist. Um, they're not sort of physical alternatives, so they've got to be some kind of abstract alternatives. But I don't know that anywhere where he sort of spells this out in detail. Well, maybe then we should we should turn to some of the applications of possible worlds that he had. And the first one that comes to mind, I mentioned it earlier, is counterfactuals. And a key dimension of possible worlds for Lewis was this notion of closeness. And what did the distance between possible worlds refer to if they aren't literally spatio-temporally related? How did how did he how did he make sense of this idea of closeness? And then how did this figure into counterfactuals? And then by extension, I mean at least in one direction, I think, to causation through counterfactuals. So I guess starting with what is what does it mean to say two worlds are sufficiently close? Well, let me start off on this as your Graham thinks, and what do you think? Uh, of course, the first thing you have to do is mention Bob Stornacker, of course, <laughs> because it was um, it was Stornacker and Lewis together who put the possible worlds approach to kind of counterfactuals on the map. Um, I think what both of them were doing were offering actually an account of what we folk mean. <laughs> it wasn't, in a sense, it wasn't abstract philosophy. They were saying the ordinary person in the street, when they say something like, had I locked the door, I would not have been robbed. <laughs> what are they saying about this is rather upsetting thought they have, 
they think, well, if things had been much the way they are with those bad guys hanging around ready to rob me, <laughs> but just this difference that the door was locked, gee, something good would have happened. I wouldn't have been robbed. <laughs> so I think it's quite literally that Lewis and Dornacker are saying, this is the way to understand the ordinary person's reflection, which they capture in counterfactual thinking. And this is not just a philosopher's exercise. Because when you think about your life, the way you feel about things is driven enormously by your opinions expressed in terms of counterfactuals. I mean, I gave an example about being robbed. But think about your most strongly held political opinions. Had Trump never become president of the United States, what follows that antecedent drives people's political convictions in all sorts of ways in America, uh, here and now. And had Roe versus Wade not been overturned, and so on, I give you lots more examples. Um, so I think that's what Lewis and Slaughter were doing. They were capturing the thought people have when they utter these kind of things. I think that's right, um, but I, you can't deny that <coughs> talk of similarity is part of the way they capture that. And if you look at the Lewis Stallmacher semantics, um, there is a notion of similarity that plays a role formally. So it's got to be doing something. Um, they both appeal to this notion of similarity. They both understand that similarity is a contextually determined matter depending on kind of what's, I mean, similarities. Two things are similar if they have properties in common, and what those properties are may depend on the topic of debate. Um, mm -hmm. So similarity in practice is going to change from context to context. But um, nonetheless, they both appeal to this notion of similarity. And I think for both of them, um, it was kind of a, shall we say, a primitive notion, something we've got a rough idea about, you can say things about, but in the end, you can't really find it in any in any hard way. And at least I don't know of anywhere in, in, in Stallnacher or Lewis where they defined it. Um, that doesn't mean they didn't gloss it in various ways. So there's a, a very famous objection to the similarity stuff by Kit Fine. Um, because um, if you consider the counterfactual, and this is standard, it, it goes back to the um, the... the possible invasion of Cuba by the by Russia or the, the sighting nuclear missiles in Russia. Um, uh, and the counterfactual relative to this is, had Kennedy pressed the button, um, all hell would have broken loose. Um, now, this sort of world's analysis of that is a world You've got to look at the world which are most similar to the present, where Kennedy pressed the button. And a world where all hell broke loose is not anything like the present world. Okay, So that has to be false. Uh, and so um, similarity has to be understood in a rather strange sense. Um, and then in, in, uh, David replied to Kit's paper um, where he sort of spelt, laid out a bunch of criteria for similarity. But this, these weren't definitions. These were more of a gloss on how, should, under, how similarity should be understood in this context. So I think the bottom line of all that 
is qua technical notion, it was a kind of primitive, which is hard to define, but you can kind of gloss it in certain ways. Yeah, but part of what goes on, of course, is in lots of cases, the similarity pertains particularly to the time at which you're making the kind of factual supposition. So in Fine's nice example, uh, the dramatic divergence from actuality occurs subsequently. That's right. Um, but uh, as, as, as Graham says, David wrote a reply to Fine and a general paper on the topic. And my memory is he had four <laughs> rules you had to follow uh, in order of importance. It was a classic Lewis exercise. There are four rules, first importance, second importance, third importance, least importance, uh, and how you're supposed to judge similarity between possible worlds when you're thinking in terms of kind of Yeah, uh, but of course David was very clear that um, these aren't always going to work in the appropriate context because um, we, we have backwards, yeah. time, backwards time counterfactuals, you know. Um, if I had read in the New York Times today that um, Russia had nuked uh, Ukraine, then you know, the New York Times being a reputable newspaper, it would be the case that Russia nuked Ukraine yesterday. And so you've, you've got to take the possibility of backwards counterfactuals. And for those kind of counterfactuals, the rules aren't going to work. And David was well aware of that. And just to tie this back, though, to my question, when I use the word closeness or the phrase the closeness between two possible worlds, that's reflective of their relative similarity. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. And and Lewis is, it's worth mentioning here, Lewis is, um, and, and Graham's touched on this, was often a bit of a Morian. There were certain Morian facts, like that there's an external world. And he was a bit of a Morian about similarity, because, of course, as Graham's mentioned, he was a student at Harvard, and Goodman was there at Harvard. And Goodman was a bit unfriendly about similarity. <laughs> I know that connected with Grew and all that. Um, and Lewis was very much a defender of common sense about similarity. Of course, he took this point that similarity is context-dependent but he wanted to insist that we can make perfect sense of talking about some things being similar to to, to others. That's, that's a Morian fact. So rugby league is more similar to rugby union than it is to soccer. Bang, tail. There are two more applications of the possible worlds that I wanted to dig into, though I'm sure there are many more. If, if there are others that you want to talk about, we can obviously talk about them. But one is mental content. And, which I suppose is probably more in your neighborhood, Frank, than than yours, Graham. But how did Lewis use possible worlds to make sense of mental content, uh, thought, representation, these sorts of things? Okay, this one's yours, Frank. Okay. Well, like two things to say. The first is that David thought that thinking of content of belief and desire in terms of possibilities was intuitively very attractive. So take people who believe that the world is warming. Why are they upset about this? Well, it's because they've got a belief of how the world is. Uh, you might say, I think propositions are the objects of belief, but why should a proposition frighten me? 
In fact, who knows what a proposition is exactly? Ah, but here's something that frightens me. A view about the kind of world I'm in. It's warming in a dangerous way, and I've got grandchildren. Um, so he thought, and again, when you desire something, you desire a cold beer. Um, I don't desire a proposition. I desire the world be a certain way, namely cold beer inside me. <laughs> so that that was the, the first step. Uh, now, of course, as everyone knows, uh, you can't just say uh, the content of belief is a set of worlds where the belief's true because of mathematical examples and all sorts of examples. But that didn't shake his conviction that there was something right about the possible world's way of thinking about content. So that, that's the first step. The second step is if, if you're a kind of behaviorist, and remember we've mentioned Quine already, David in his, one of his last papers in The Philosophy of Mind says, of course, behaviorism is false, but you have to pay your debt to behaviorism. So he had a behaviorist background. Now, if you've got a behaviorist background and you like the possible world's approach to content, you can give an account of truth conditions for belief and desire. And uh, now I had a whiteboard. I could do it for you easily, but I'll see if I can do it in words. <laughs> when people behave, they change the way things are. So you can think of their behavior as determining a function that goes from po one possibility to another possibility. That is, were things this way, this sort of behavior would make things to be that way. So you get functions that go from one set of possibilities to another set. Now, the idea is, if you correctly interpret someone's behavior in circumstances, you can find two sets of worlds which have the following property. Were it actually the case that you're in the first set, your behavior would mean that you were in the second set. Okay, the first set's the content of belief, the second set's the content of desire. That, that's how you get the truth conditions. Now, with a whiteboard, it would be easy, but you get the basic picture. Behavior determines a function from one set of possibilities to another. And once you've got that picture, you then get truth conditions for belief and desire. That, that's just what I've given you is a lightning sketch of the functionalist treatment of how beliefs and desires get content. And in fact, it's in Stornacker's inquiry. In inquiry, Stornacker says, how can a brain state, if you're a good materialist, have truth conditions? And the story I've just given you is, is basically the story that both he, he and Lewis like. Now, one more thing to say before I stop. Remember, later on, Lewis became a big fan of the day say. So from that perspective, it's not quite right to think of the content of belief and desire as location in a set of possible worlds. Belief and desire, in his view, is more location in a set of possible individuals. So when you believe you're bald, as I regret I do, and I hope Graham's not insulted, I think Graham and I share this belief, what we believe is that we belong to the set of the bald. And that's to have a belief of how the world is, namely there's at least one bald person in it. But it's actually something more than that. And the extra bit is the day save bit. So the little lightning sketch I gave you to start with has to be modified in view of what David later said about, about the day save. But the picture is basically pretty clear. When you mentioned that you, you do you belong to the the set of the the bald, I saw that I mean you also wrote that he that David contributed very much to, or very much is my words, you didn't add that, that he committed, he contributed to the literature on vagueness. And 
there there's a debate over whether or not, not there is a set of the bald because there can't be vague sets and bald is a is a vague uh predicate uh where did david contribute to the literature on vagueness because i've i've never seen it before um i think that i'm going to say something briefly and look look to graham um I think David was always pretty clear that he was picking up on a supervaluations idea, which he sourced in other places. Um, so I, th so he used it in his work, but I think he was always careful to acknowledge that he was picking up the basic idea, maybe from Van Prassen, maybe from Fine. I should know, but I haven't done that bit of homework. Perhaps, perhaps Graham knows. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember where those papers are. Um... Okay, I don't remember where the papers are, um, so I don't recall exactly what he said either. Um, but you're, I think Frank is right that he was attracted by the thought that certain words are vague, and what that means is that they um, do not have a fully defined um, extension and counter-extension, and... Uh, you can extend them in various ways to complete the extension and counter-extension. So this is um, a, a version of supervaluation. And I think David was very clear that um, vagueness is only ever a phenomenon of language, not reality. So reality itself is quite precise. It's only that our language, which we use to describe it, is indeterminate in certain ways. And that can be rectified, whatever, uh, if you desire it, by kind of um, this supervaluation procedure. I think the idea ultimately goes back to Burton Russell, the paper by Burton Russell published many years ago in the AJP, if I remember rightly, in which basically Russell says vagueness is a semantic yeah. phenomenon, as we'd say it in modern terms. First edition of the AJP, 1923. The uh, AJP is 100 years old this year. Ray. <laughs> no. Well, the the last application of the possible worlds that I wanted to talk about, I suppose, is probably more in in Graham's neighborhood this time than the mental content, and that is his writing on fiction. And I suppose that it might have to do with you, Graham, because you also obviously have written and thought a lot about fictional objects. And I'm not actually sure if his writing on fiction was related to possible worlds, but I just am assuming that we can make sense of the truths of statements about Sherlock Holmes or other fictional objects by somehow looking at possible worlds in which they're true. No, indeed, it was totally connected with worlds. Uh, so David has um, a very nice paper where he talks about truth in fiction. Um, and uh, let me keep this simple. Take a statement such as um, Sherlock Holmes lived in Baker Street. Okay. Now, setting all the counterpart theory stuff aside, because uh, it just complicates matters, uh, what does it mean to say Sherlock Holmes lived in Baker Street? Well, it's not true. There was never any Sherlock Holmes in Baker Street, but it's true in the dollar fictions, right? What does that mean? 
Well, it means that in every possible world that realizes the Doyle fiction, in other words, makes the things that Doyle said true, um, Sherlock Holmes lives in Baker Street. And, you know, the, 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 the full analysis was more complicated than that to handle the complexities, but that's essentially it. So he cast out, cashed out truth in fiction in terms of uh, truth in all worlds of a certain kind. Now, I think that is right. I mean, I disagree with David about his view of the status of worlds, uh, but I think his uh, view is essentially correct. Where we differ uh, about that is that I think there are inconsistent fictions which are deliberately inconsistent, okay? Where the consistency, the inconsistency is not an accident or an oversight, but deliberately so. Um, and if you subscribe to essentially this account of truth in fiction, that means there have got to be um, inconsistent worlds, if you like, impossible worlds. Now, David did not like, David really liked possible worlds. He did not like impossible worlds. And there's a bit of a story about this because um, I remember having a long discussion with David once. I forget where we were, but um, David had this view that if you meet an inconsistent fiction, what you do is fragment it. So you break it up into two fictions, essentially. One horn of the contradiction holds in one um, world or bunch of worlds, and the other horn holds in the other world. So you've got to render them consistent in some sense. And that struck me as crazy because um, I remember having this argument with David. Uh, I said, look, there must be stories where you can't, that doesn't make sense to do it that way. And David said, I don't think so. And I said, I bet there is. And so I sit down. I sat down and I wrote Sylvan's Box. So Sylvan's Box is a story that is deliberately contradictory. And to uh, if you break the story up into consistent chunks, you don't get okay. Um, you've got to have the contradiction in the one and only world that realize, or one in the worlds that realize the story. Otherwise, you know, it, it just it just it's just wrong. Okay. Um, so I wrote this story and, and I sent it to David and um, he had to admit that he'd been wrong in the past. So, I mean, as I said, you know, David um, wasn't the sort of person who would hang on to his theory come what may. Um, he would admit to being wrong when he thought he was wrong. This was one of the rare occasions where um, I actually got him to admit that he, he was wrong. Um, but he did. Um, and he said he didn't quite know what to say about this. He wasn't going to buy into impossible worlds. That was a bridge too far. But he, he did agree that his account of you know, breaking up the contradictions into two parts didn't work. So that's a bit of a story about David. Hmm. And a good story. Are there any other aspects of impossible worlds that you wanted to get into or thought we should touch on? Before we moved on, well, what, what, what one thing just worth mentioning quickly is he also liked the use of possible worlds in spelling out what materialism uh, was saying. Because remember, the idea of materialism, in some sense, the material way things are determines without remainder the psychological way things are. And I've just uttered some words which I hope meant something. <laughs> 
but it's sort of been nice to have an analysis of what exactly you mean when you say the material or physical way things are determined without remainder of the psychological way things are, and there are like possible worlds there, because you can translate that in terms of possible worlds using the notion of supervenience. So that's another case where he was using possible worlds to articulate a view he liked, namely materialism. Yeah, so you're talking about the identity theory of the of the mind. That's right, but he, he wanted a way, of course he thought brain states or mental states, but he wanted a way of expressing materialism which was neutral on whether you thought you should be more of a behaviorist or more of a functorist or whether it was type type or token token, all sorts of things you might say, a, a more detailed kind. He wanted a way of saying, what's the basic thought I've got? Uh, and what's the basic thought? Take any world like this one. In physical regards, it'll be exactly like this one in psychological regards. That, that, that's how you do it. Now, I've left out lots of frills because actually that's not quite right. <laughs> but that, that, that's, a, that's the basic thought. Okay. And I, I guess that there are... There are lots of frills, but this is really important. Can you say more about his argument for an identity theory of mind over, say, like rival dualist theories? I mean, what the general sort of... Because my understanding is that he wasn't going... Hmm, this isn't like a, a parsimony sort of argument. It's very it's very uh, different from that. Yes, Um Here's the background. The first bit of background is he wrote a paper called An Argument for the Identity Theory. As a graduate student, I mean, really was a bit intimidating. It was a very important paper on the identity theory written by a graduate student. Um, what he does in this paper is he says, look, take Jack Smart's idea. And Jack Smart taught um, Lewis at Harvard um, when Jack was visiting Harvard. Um Take Jack's view, forget about all the stuff about parsimony, as you've just mentioned, nominological danglers. There's a much simpler argument, and here it is. Mental states play causal roles. What causal roles? Science will tell us. When we do the science, it's going to turn out to be neuroscientific states that play their causal roles. We then use the transitive identity. Nothing about Occam, nothing about nomological danglers, which will mean something to those who know Smart's famous original paper on, on the identity theory. We just use the ident uh, transitive identity to conclude that mental states are brain states. So that's the, basically the story he told in that very early paper he wrote as a graduate student. Um, so that, that's the basic picture. Uh, but then later on, of course, he wanted to express the idea there's some generally overall materialistic picture. And my version, which is like Armstrong's, uh, is certainly a kind of materialism, but wouldn't it be nice if we had a way of expressing the general materialistic thought <laughs> which animates people like Smart, Armstrong, Lewis, and so on, and Feigl. And the supervenience way in terms of possible worlds was the way he, he, he did that. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad that you stopped me to talk about this because that that is really important but what and what i wanted to move on to before was humean supervenience because one of 
another one of David's most significant and memorable contributions is that of Humean supervenience. And he described it this way, and I've got a quote here. So it's the doctrine that all there is to the world is a vast mosaic of local matters of particular fact, just one little thing and then another. And now for me, this is so memorable because of the sort of mental image it conjures for me, which is just this sort of like glimmering eternal mosaic like space that is, I don't know, something like the Kantian uh, noumena. But it's also just a very fascinating way of looking at fundamental ontology. So where did though this idea come from? How does it relate to Hume? And what was before, again, before we get into some of the applications like we did with possible worlds, what was the motivation for picturing the universe as being like this? Well, I don't know where David got it from, but it's clearly in Hume or something like that is in Hume. And the thought it would, Hume is an empiricist, of course. And um, he thought that both um, knowledge and meaning came from experience. And um, when the wind blows and a leaf falls off the tree, you don't actually see any causal connection. You see the wind, or you feel the wind blowing, and then the leaf falls. Um, and so um, since that you can't have any knowledge of things you can't perceive, there's, there's no such thing. It's even quite meaningless to talk about such thing, is Hume's view. Um, so all you can see are particular events or happenings. Um, and Hume held that view because of his empiricism. Um, David, I don't know why he held the view. I mean, Frank, you probably have more idea of this than I do. Um, yes, maybe partly the influence of Quine, um, but I think the way you've expressed Hume's thought is probably what what David thought. Uh, sure, you see one thing moving, and then you see something uh, next to it moving. Uh, what else is there to see? Uh, you might say, but of course, he, he did think. Of course, in one sense, there might be a transmission of force, of course. Uh, but that would be another particular thing. Yeah, um, that, that may be true. Although, I mean, he's no stranger to postulating things when he thinks they you know, serve an appropriate theoretical function, like yeah. um, worlds or, or sets. Um, so he, he could have gone that way had he chosen, I guess. So how, though, on it, I mean, I have this image of the super mosaic, this world of, or this universe of sort of points with qualities or properties. How does this then turn into some sort of philosophy of laws of nature? I mean, that's one of the first things that come to mind when I think of how he put the this idea of human supervenience or the super mosaic to I, use. I, sorry, I don't think Robinson's asking about the Canberra plan, Frank. And you being a Canberraite, best place to this. Oh. No, I think... I think the Canberra plan is a little bit misunderstood. <laughs> uh, 
the, the general idea of, it, it, it's a generally a favorable view about uh, illuminating analyses. Uh, it's not um, a fanatical belief that you should always do it. It's just that when you can do it, it, it it's a good thing because you. I don't know what you're what you oh. two are referring to. Oh. <laughs> The camera well, plan? Well, let, let, let me explain the camera plan as it applies in the philosophy of mind. Uh, we, we have a language, belief and desire, hopes, jealousy, ambitions, pain. This language is used to predict and explain people's behavior. In fact, it does a pretty good job. So if you want to explain the behavior of various people, you say, they're screaming because they're in pain. Uh, they're buying a lottery ticket because they desire to win. They're taking an umbrella because they believe it's going to rain, etc., etc., etc. That's right, folk psychology. Um, and then you say, right, how can we explain these systematic behaviours of these organised parcels of matter? We postulate inner causes which plays role, play roles defined by their connection to the external things you observe. And then you get the functionalist, often known as common sense or analytical functionalism, uh, analysis of what it is to have beliefs, desires, and so on and so forth. So that, that, that's just actually, that's David Armstrong in the materialist theory of the mind. <laughs> um, and that's one example. And the, the Canberra plan is to take that idea and apply it whenever possible. But notice the words whenever possible. <laughs> uh, I myself think it should be applied in ethics. Uh, I think what's morally good is precisely what has the property which plays the role specified in common sense morality. But that, that's a topic for a different yeah. time. So, so the connection that I see with the Campbell plan, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Frank, is this. Um, Hume takes laws to be constant conjunctions, right? Um, when you put the kettle on the stove, it boils. Assuming you've got the gas on. Um, okay, but constant mm -hmm. conjunctions are everywhere. I mean, you know, that's we've got Guru to thank for that. Um, so which of these constant conjunctions do we single out as significant? Um, and then we apply the Canberra plan to, uh, to do that. Yes, I, I, I would have thought of it slightly differently, but I don't know if that really matters. Um, one way to express is we all believe in laws. Um, what, what's our evidence for believing in laws? Basically, very complicated facts about regularities. So if you want to be ontologically austere, you'll try and find an analysis which allows you to explain how we move from these regularities to laws without positing anything extra over and above the massive regularities. So that you might think of that as ontological austerity or modesty. And I think that's probably what drove Lewis's thought on, on, on this. Um, I'm, I'm sorry if I've missed it, if I'm being daft somehow, but how did, how did Lewis think of laws? I mean, how did he build off of... Hume's view of, of constant conjunctions. Was it was it in there somewhere and I just missed it? 
Well, he, he quotes Ramsey, and uh, I'll see if I get it right. Graham may correct me. Uh, Ramsey suggested laws are going to be the regularity you got if you trade it off correctly, simplicity against strength. So you need laws that give you good predictions. Um, you might make them as simple as possible. Um, and that was a trade-off between the two. That, 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 that's what laws were in Ramsey's view, and Lewis built on that. But now I'm going to look to Graham because he may have um, been more up-to-date on no, this. No, I'm not. I mean, you, you've got to say which regularities are, are to be considered laws mm. uh, and which constant conjunctions are, are to be considered laws. And then you do the kind of theory choice that, that Frank was mentioning. So you, you, yeah, that's it. Are either of you particularly familiar with how chance or probability fit into Lewis's theory of, of laws and human supervenience? In, in a famous paper, he connects credence with probability. Remember, the basic formula is um, if you're certain that the objective chance of something is 0.7, that's the credence you'd give it. So the idea is you treat objective chance as it appears in science and statistics with credence by that basic rule. If you're convinced that the objective chance is so-and-so, that determines the credence. It should be so-and-so. And then more complicated cases and other examples. Um, and that guides his approach. Um, and I think he thought really of objective chances as patterns, fancy patterns. It's not a simple frequency theory. If they're fancy patterns, and again, they're constrained by that rule I gave you earlier, connecting beliefs in chances with credences. Yeah, so the conjunctions, the, con the conjunctions needn't be constant. They can be constant to a degree, I guess. Um, and if you think that way, then you're going to get sort of probabilistic laws. Uh, and then, you know, the connection between those and credences were the ones that David's knew about those. Is exactly what you described, Frank. Um, I'm just wondering whether David ever put that book together with possible worlds um, to take, to define the probabilities as measures over the space of worlds. And it would have been an obvious move, but I don't recall that he ever did it. Yeah. I, I should know, but I don't. Well, something that I, I do know that you'll have something to say about, Frank, is because in our last conversation, we talked a bit about what you've named the location problem. And I'm wondering if you could describe it again uh, because I think it it relates very much to this picture of the Humean super mosaic. Well, in general terms, the location problem is sometimes you have a story about how things are in one vocabulary, and you want to connect it to how things are as given in a different vocabulary. That that that's the problem. So you've got. Uh, let me take a really simple example. You've got a big story about how things are in terms of winning and losing chess games. Indeed, maybe you've made a study 
of all the recent results in chess games. So that's a story about how the world is in terms of winning and losing. Here's another story about how the world is. Carlson is the best player. Okay. Now, I've now switched from winning and losing talk to best player talk. Okay. So how do I go from all the stuff about winning and losing to best? And the answer is, well, the best player is the one that wins the highest number of games. Now, actually, that's too simple, but that would be one way of solving it. But what you've done is you've shown how the data about winning and losing actually a priori entails who's the best. In fact, you told people how to do the calculation. That, 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 that's a really simple example. Um, now, it gets more interesting when you say, right, now imagine an account of the world in terms of people's neurological states and how those neurological states interconnect with their surroundings, which tells us exactly why they take an umbrella when there's water coming this direction. <laughs> um, take that complicated story and see how that story relates to a story about belief and desire. Uh, and that's the problem that Armstrong set himself in the first part of the big book on material theory of the mind. He gave an account of mental states which should enable you to a priori deduce them from enough detail about how things are in, in different terms, namely in behavioural terms and inner cause terms. So that, that, that's, that, that's just a couple of examples. But to repeat what I said before, the location problem is simply finding out what to say about how things are in one set of terms, given how things are in a different set of terms. And of course, sometimes the answer is you can't do it, of course. Sometimes you can. Yeah. Hmm. So do you, do you see a relation to the human super mosaic or, or no? Well, no, I, I think Lewis's view about laws, uh, his view was if you knew enough about the mosaic, you could actually a priori reduce the laws. So that would be the solution. So you're saying, where is the law? Gravity is governed by an inverse square law. How do I find that? And that enormous data you've got about the planets and so on, the location problem, so you can a priori reduce that. That would be the idea. Yeah. And his account of laws would enable you to do that a priori reduction. Yeah. Well, the last sort of area that I wanted to touch on and it might be more in Graham's camp, is some Mariology and philosophy of math. And Graham, I just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did a four-hour episode with Achille on Mariology. So we don't have to go too much into the Mariology. But he had some ideas about fusion uh, and parsimony and mariological fusions have been i think very much misunderstood graham do you recall or have much to say on lewis and fusions well i can tell you roughly what his view was uh, about the mariological set theory would that suffice for an answer So David's book is called Parts of Classes, and um, here's a tempting thought. Um, 
parts of a class are exactly its members. Okay. Now, tempting though that is, that's just wrong. Because if you take um, Sorry, let me uh, add a bit more to the picture before I say it's wrong. If, if you take the thought that the parts of a class are its members, then you can take the class to be um, the fusion of its members. So you have a very nice story to tell about the space of sets, mainly it's just the fusion of its members. Now, um, that's, that story appealed to Lewis. But that won't work. That's wrong. Just because um, the fusion of one thing is itself. Whereas if you take a singleton, its parts just have to be itself. And so um, if you just take the fusion of the members, you get the same thing, not the singleton, which is different. Okay. So... Um, you cannot run the thought that the, that the set is the fusion of its members straightforwardly. Um, so what David did was say, well, you can almost do it. So you have to take the notion of a singleton as sort of primitive. Um, and then this gets around the problem of uh, the fusion of a, um, a singleton being distinct from the fusion of its member. Um, but once you've done that, you can go ahead with this thought that the um, a set is just the fusion of its parts, or at least they're singletons or something like that. So um, you've almost got rid of sets, but not quite, um, because once you take uh, as a primitive the singleton operator, which only gives you a sort of very small application of set theory, then you can do the rest with Mariology. And that's the, essentially the story that you get in parts of classes. Well, I, I'm recalling now that I think the second paper in your volume is actually by Akile and Roberto Cazzati called, I think it's called Counting the Holes or Counting All the Holes or something like that. And Naturally, that's a response to David's paper, Holes. And you two, you mentioned earlier that you were both friends, I think, with his wife. Mm -hmm. And they wrote that paper together, Holes. Did, was she a philosopher? Did she write many other papers with him as far as you know? Yes, she was a philosopher. Um, but uh, she didn't have a job as a philosopher. She worked uh, in finance, I think, in Wall Street. Um but uh, she was no mean philosopher herself. And often at dinner time, in conversations um, of a philosophical nature, Steffi would be a, a full party to the discussion. Um, and clearly they talked about philosophy at home. Um, you know, the Argel Bargel paper is obviously a kind of written up version of the discussion they've been having at times. So, uh, yeah, she, Steffi was a philosopher, although not, she didn't, her profession wasn't that of a professional philosopher. I have a story about that paper, which I think is true, but I'm, it's, I heard it second or third hand. Um, there was a big conference in Hawaii about the mind-brain identity theory. In fact, 
in which David um, published a paper, a sort of follow-up to the paper mentioned earlier, the Identity Theory of Mind paper. Um, and the story I heard was that David and Steffi were maybe having breakfast in the hotel and started some discussion about whether holes exist. Was it only whole surrounds? No, no, surely it's only whole surrounds. But hold on, the whole surrounds surround a hole. So the hole must exist. Okay. So they had that sort of discussion, and that was the paper. Now, I repeat, this is third or fourth hand, but I thought it was such a... If it's not true, it ought to be true. It's uh, so much uh, David doing philosophy through interchanges, in this case, interchanges with, with Steffi. Yeah, maybe you could say, one of you could say more about what the paper was about and in doing so, I guess, how it was written. Because it was written quite uniquely, at least for contemporary philosophy, where you don't see many papers of this sort anymore. This is the Arkel Barkle paper? Well, I don't know, but I, no, no, I, I assume know. it's more or less what um, Frank says. I mean... Whether this discussion occurred in a hotel, um, obviously they had been having a discussion about this, and then they decided to kind of write it up. I mean, of course, when you write up a paper, it never tracks the exact discussion. You clean it up and uh, correct mistakes and so on. But it, it, I, I assume that it's essentially a written-up version of the discussion they'd had. <clears throat> so I guess last... I should end just by asking if there are any other areas of David's philosophy that you think we ought to mention, because, I mean, obviously he had an immensely productive dialogue with Derek Parfit on personal identity. He wrote about uh, perduring and enduring entities, four-dimensionalism, uh, he wrote a lot more on, on the metaphysics of, of set theory and Mariology. Is there anything else that you think we ought to mention? Let, let me just mention one example, which I think illustrates one of his particular strengths. Uh, as you know, no, a number of people working in ethics like the idea that there are beliefs which are necessarily connected with desire. So if you believe something's good, really believe it's good, you're bound to have a certain desire that it obtained. That's an interesting view, and they're sometimes called bizarres, a sort of word made up of, out of belief and, and desire. When Lewis heard about this view, he thought, okay, we've got a view connecting belief and desire. We all also have something called decision theory, which is all about connections between belief and preference functions. I wonder if this view that people like in ethics can be reconciled with decision theory. His answer was, no, it can't. Now, be he right or wrong about that, I think it's a lovely example of the way he saw connections between otherwise disparate areas. People in ethics, well, people in ethics often don't think much about decision theory. In my opinion, they should think much more about decision theory, in fact. But they work in ethics people working on the technical parts of decision theory, he asked the question, how are these two things interconnected? That was a classic exercise in the way David saw things in a, in a global way. Yeah. Um, 
So while we're on the subject of ethics, I mean, David wrote a lot more about metaphysics and ethics, but he did think about ethics sometimes, as, as Frank said. And um, he sometimes he wrote sort of little gems of papers. And there's one on ethics, which uh, is kind of interesting. Uh, I forget what it's called. Uh, you may remember, Frank, but it's about why um, if you disagree with someone's philosophical views, you think it's okay to appoint them or good to appoint them to a position you're in your department. So what sparked this interest, I have no idea. But, I mean, the more you think about it, it is kind of puzzling. Look, if I think you're completely wrong, why would I appoint you to a position in my department to teach the falsehood, teach falsehoods to people, right? We wouldn't appoint a mathematician who was going to teach falsehoods in mathematics. Why on earth would you do that in philosophy? Okay, uh, and then there's a discussion of this, this and, and David explains why he thinks it's, it's good to appoint people you disagree with, okay? Um, I don't know that that does interconnect much with many other Lewisian themes, but um, it's just an example of something that happened that spurred David's philosophical curiosity. And he, he solved this problem to his satisfaction, at least at that time, and then published it. Do you recall how he solved that problem? Because now I'm curious. It is a, a very good and interesting problem. And it it's actually gets to philosophy of math, too, in a way. I don't remember what he actually said, but I presume it was something to the effect that we're all fallible and it's good to have people around um, we can argue with to show us where we're wrong. Is but, that I mean, that... Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly... Uh, I, I know this paper. Um, what I'd say about it, and this may be another way of saying what just been said, uh, I'd use the words hybrid vigour. You know the term in... Biology, hybrid vigor. <laughs> oh, oh. It's a good idea to mix things up a bit so that uh, if dogs become too inbred, things can go wrong. Uh, it's often a good idea to do a bit of hybrid vigor. Um, and it happens with wheat. You know, you get stronger sorts of wheat. You do very... Okay, so part of the story would be, yes, you may appoint this person who has views you think are mistaken, but the challenge of having them in the department uh, will either strengthen your own conviction that your views are right, or else it may lead you to change your mind. Anyway, there'll be a kind of probabilistic argument that mixing people together with different views is likely in the longer term to lead to more truth rather than less truth. Uh, I very much hope that's true anyway. <laughs> Perhaps that's a hope rather than a reasoned conviction. Now, uh, another, a more personal way, I think, in which to end. I wonder if there are any ways that come easily to mind for either of you in which uh, David's philosophy, his views, can be seen in your own work. Well, the short answer is he's had an enormous influence on, on me. Um, in some ways, and I've been seeing what Graham says about this, he could, of course, be a bit intimidating. Um, what I mean by that, not personally, he was a very nice, extremely kind person, 
and very generous with his time, all those sort of things. Um, you're working on a topic. Uh, I sometimes got the sense, yes, look, I think I've got something to say worth saying on this, but I think David might have something better to say, and that can have a slightly negative effect on your motivation. <laughs> you sort of think. Uh, so that, that was the only comment uh, I'd make. And, of course, in a way, that's a compliment to what a good philosopher he, he was. But generally, yes, um, uh, in my book, From Metaphysics to Ethics, um, I think I'm right in saying uh, that his name gets more mentions in the index than any other name. I think that's right. And that's yeah, the conceptual I, analysis book we spoke about, yeah? That's right. That's from Metaphysics to Ethics, Offensive Conceptual Analysis, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that David had an effect on me, on me, on him uh, very much, to be honest. Um, I mean, his interests and mine overlapped, but I had many interests that he didn't have and vice versa. Um, certainly in those areas where our views overlap, there's not a great deal of commonality, I think. But um, I think you have to remember that uh, philosophical influence is not simply about adopting another person's views. In, in some ways, it takes us back to what we've just been talking about, you know, talking to people with different views, because philosophy is a very solitary activity in a certain sense. We don't tend to write, you know, 30-membered, 30 authored papers in the way that happens in science. Um, and you can get the impression that, uh, that when, when you publish a paper, it's all your own work. And invariably it is not because um, when you publish a paper, it's been through a long process of discussion with colleagues at seminars, um, which have always improved it. So um, often, the philosophers who are valuable to you are not ones who agree with you. They're ones who disagree with you. Um, and the kind of dialectic of discussion serves to improve your views. Uh, and I think that's true of all our interchanges in philosophy. So philosophy is actually a very social activity. Um, and to return to David, I think um, if there's been an effect of David on me, on me, on David, it's because of the kind of dialectical interchanges we had on so many topics over the years. Yes, let me just add um, a big tick to what Graham just said. Um, oh, I thought you were going to add uh, oh, longer. Oh, no. Well, I could give a little tick gesture I on see, the screen. I see. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that's a really great note to end. I have to say again as i said before we started uh thank you two so much for doing this with me it's really been an so, honor to have Robinson, you do, do you mind if i make a, a final comment about david because there's something about him as, him as a person which i think is um kind of interesting and it's about the way he gave papers um so th there's a kind of slightly old-fashioned way of giving a paper where you just read you write a a printed paper, a print paper to be published, and you just read it. Okay. Um, often that's a very bad way of giving a talk because oral communication 
and written communication are very different communicative acts. So if you look at, at particularly younger philosophers nowadays, they don't read papers. What they do is they talk. And generally, papers are much more interesting when they're talked than when they're read. Okay. But David read papers. Okay. Um, and he did it brilliantly. Um, because if you look at his written style, it's very much like the way he spoke. Okay. So um, he had a very kind of um, informal way of expressing his ideas. Just just read his papers and you'll see that. Uh, it's, very, it's not literary at all. It's actually like hearing David speak. So when he, when he gave a paper, he would read it. But it was just like hearing him talk. So in that sense, you know, he didn't, he, he, he wrote like the way he talked. Uh, so it was no big deal to read a paper because it was like talking paper. And uh, it was one of the very um, charming aspects of David. Uh, and if you, if you know, if you knew him, when you read his papers, you could just hear him talking. Uh, I, I don't know if you ever had that experience, Frank. Yes, and as Graham said, he had this rare ability to read a text in a way which was engaging. Mm -hmm. um, uh, David Armstrong had something the same ability. Um, he had a, a way of reading it really slowly. <laughs> but uh, as Graham says, mostly these days, and I think Graham does this, and I certainly do this, I, I just give a chat to PowerPoint. Um, uh, I haven't read a paper for a very long time. But uh, Lewis, by and large, did read them, and it was, as Graham says, um, I mean, I can give a tiny bit of background story. I took my wife to one of David's lectures at an AOP conference years and years ago. So she sat up the back, and we came out afterwards, and she turned to me and said, I had no idea David was such a showman. <laughs> David had turned on a really lovely reading performance of a text. Um, at the conference, and she was a non-philosopher to come along, uh, and she was used to writers giving presentations, and she was very struck by the the whole occasion, in fact, yeah. Well, this time, before I, I say farewell, I will ask uh, if there are any last uh, stories or anything that either of you would like to say. No, David was a, a very unusual philosopher, and... Um, as um, they sometimes say at Burns Light, we're unlikely to see his like for a long time again. Well then, on that note, uh, thank you two so much for doing this with me. It's been a real honor and a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Robinson. I've certainly enjoyed it. And I'm Absolutely. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow, if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And... Also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.